is laid down in walking. The inspiration for this title comes from a poem I like very much from, by the Spanish poet Antonio Machado. And uh, so I will read the poem, and I can't resist reading it in Spanish. It's so much more musical in Spanish. It doesn't matter whether you don't get the meaning. In fact, it's perhaps better. <laughs> Translation is, is not uh, that good, I find. Perhaps partly because I, I try to improve on it. <laughs> Here it is. Caminante, son tus huellas el camino y nada más. Caminante, no hay camino. Se hace camino al andar. Al andar se hace camino. Y al volver la vista atrás, se ve la senda que nunca se ha de volver a pisar. Caminante, no hay camino sino estelas en el mar. Here's a translation. Wayfarer, the way is your footsteps and nothing else. Wayfarer, there is no path. The path is laid down in walking. In walking, the path is laid down. And on turning back to look, one sees the trail that will never be trod again. Wayfarer, there is no path, only a wake left on the sea. Clearly, Machado's understanding of the path runs counter our habitual views. Habitually, we see ourselves, we like, we love to see ourselves as solid, stable, roaming about an equally solid and stable world. Selecting out of this world the course, the path we wish to take. That's the way we picture things to our mind, habitually. Our language, of course, contributes significantly to this way of seeing things. We talk about the path. The path. We give it solidity by just naming it. In fact, that's what language does. That's what nouns do in our language. We designate our constructs by language. And then we believe in what we've done. We end up immersed in a world of items that correspond 
to the labels we've attached to them, including the path, the way. This sort of world is what the Buddha called in his language, in the language Pali, the world of Nama Rupa, name and form. In this world, if it's not a noun that we attribute reality to, it's a pronoun. I, you, us, them, ends up creating what's designating. In saying I, Jose, Jose, what's this thing? I end up conjuring it, and likewise with any names. Not that they are not useful, but we go beyond the usefulness of name. We impart substantiality to that which is supposed to represent. My dear Don Pablo Neruda says this very beautiful. This time, I, for a while at least, I'll spare you the Spanish. Except for the title. Demasiados nombres. Too many names. No one can claim... Well, I'm just doing some excerpts from it. No one can claim the name of Pedro, nobody's Rosa or Maria. All of us are dust or sand. All of us are rain under rain. They have spoken to me of Venezuela, of Chile, of Paraguay. I have no idea what they're saying. I know only the skin of the earth, and I know it's got no name. When I sleep every night, what am I called or not called? And when I wake, who am I if I was not I while I slept? This means to say that scarcely have we landed into life as we come to be born. We fill our mouth with so many faltering names, with so many sad formalities, with so many pompous letters, with so much of yours and mine, with so much signing of papers. That's Don Pablo, about names. Too many names. And then there are the verbs. They're there, but they really take a back seat, you know. They really take a back seat. More often than not, are subordinate to the nouns or pronouns. They're reduced to articulate the linkage between this and that. This does 
that. The emphasis in this and that. In subject and object, in fact. This does that to that. This. It's all very much in the structure of language, which is the structure of culture, of course. The structure of the programming of our mind. I point here as if it is here. Not that I know that's here. Shortcut. It's no surprise that uh, one of the classic books, textbooks actually, on linguistics, is called The Prison House of Language, written by somebody who knows what he's talking about. Just, just, just one little story, just because it happened recently to me, to highlight this problem of programming. I was uh, updating the mailing list that I use, of course, to send mailings to all of you for this retreat, actually. And uh, suddenly, every time I typed the name Jan, it wrote January. <laughs> it was maddening. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Finally, I had to use just Jan's initial, J. <laughs> Obviously, eventually I discovered that it was misprogrammed, whatever, but, the, you know, so that it was reading dates rather than name. But, but the problem is that this isn't the nature of programming. They'll do, they'll distort things to fit the program. And that's what language does, and that's what our minds do to you, to, to us. So no wonder our minds can be so easily manipulated by the propaganda wizards, whether it's the people selling us things uh, uh, in the Madison Avenue institutions, through the Madison Avenue institutions, whether it is uh, Mr. Joseph Goebbels that... Uh, most of you were lucky not to know he was Hitler's minister of propaganda. Whether it's uh, our current minister of propaganda, Mr. Karl Rove, whether it is a minister of propaganda of the government of Iran, whoever it is, they know how to tamper with our program, they'll do that. You may say, by now, well, this guy has gotten sidetracked. You know, what's this got to do with meditation? Well, look, if you pay a little attention, you discover it has everything to do with meditation. Surely, in meditation, the instruction is to direct the mind, say, to the breath, uh, to the sensations in the feet. But what actually happens when we do sit time and time again 
the mind strays, goes off on a tangent, using language. We have these endless conversations with ourselves. Of course, we've stopped conversing with others. And so all that energy of conversation, of chatter, we turn on ourselves. And we talk to ourselves. We tell stories to ourselves. Stories that have... You can take a moment to look at what the stories do. They tend to convince ourselves that we live in a solid world, that things are predictable, even if horrendous, still predictable, and that we are in this or that situation. And we fabricate an image of the world and an image of ourselves. It's, we find it easier to do that in the past where things have been selected, screened out by the filter of memory. Or in the future, we can invent anything at all because nobody knows what's going to happen. The, it's a little more difficult to do that in the present, but uh, don't uh, underappreciate the mind. The mind will fabricate anything anywhere. But still, it's easy to do this illusion of solidity in the past or in the future. In all this inner dialogue, there's a silver lining. And the silver lining is that we can become aware of it and instead of believing everything, you can understand where we are. It's as in an image that I have used before and I'll repeat it again because I think it's very graphic. We go to the movies and we're totally caught up in the plot, in the story, in the love story, in the killing story, whatever it is. And then in a moment of sobriety we say, hey, what's going on? We look up there the movies are still old-fashioned projectors, I think. And we see the beams of light going onto the screen. And we say, oh, that's what actually happened. We see the process of fabrication. We can still enjoy the movie. But we don't have to get scared. As children sometimes do I remember I did when I was very little. You know, get under get below the level of the seat so I didn't see anything for a while and then pick up, see if it was okay to look. The moment we begin to understand this fabrication, the nature of the prison house we've got let ourselves in. It's the moment we can start looking for the door, for the way out. So that's why instructions in the sitting put so much emphasis on the now, on the moment. Because it's there where the openings appear.
It's also because of this that the instructions in the sitting put so much emphasis on direct experience. Not an experience filtered through language, thinking, all this nama rupa kind of stuff. But actually feeling directly. What's the sensation in the nostrils? What's the sensation in the knee when it hurts? Not to make a story about this knee hurting and having to go to a doctor and who knows what's ailing me and all that. Just be directly, plainly with the experience. The Buddha states this very, very clearly in his instructions in the scriptures. He's talking to this um, follower called Malinkyaputta. Here, Malinkyaputta, regarding things seen, heard, sensed, and cognized by you. In the scene, there will be merely the scene. In the heard, there will be merely the heard. In the sense, there will be merely the sense. In the cognized, there will be merely the cognized. Simply and directly as that. And throughout the suttas, the scriptures, the Buddha is encouraging us to drop our clinging to nama rupa, to name and form, to language, in fact, and to the fictions they generate. And Neruda said that poignantly in that poem that I didn't read fully, so let me read the last part again, if I'll find it. Here it is. I'll reread part of what I read and read the last uh, stanza as well. This means that scarcely have we landed into life as we come to be born, we fill our mouth mouth with so many faltering names, so many sad formalities, with so many pompous letters, with so much of yours and mine, with so much signing of papers. Then he goes on to say, I have a mind to confuse things, unite them, make them newborn, mix them up, undress them, until all light in the world has a oneness of the ocean, a generous, vast wholeness, a crackling, living fragrance. And I can resist doing this in Spanish now, the last one. Yo pienso confundir las cosas, unirlas y recién nacerlas, entreverarlas, desvestirlas, hasta que la luz del mundo tenga la unidad del océano, una integridad generosa, una fragancia crepitante.
course, language is also needed. I, mean, I want to make that very clear. Neruda uses language. The Buddha uses language. Myself and many other teachers uh, very appropriately use it language to communicate. That's the only tool that's available. What matters is not turning this tool into a prison, into the end of everything, but to see things that are beyond the ability of language to define. For openers, we could start shifting the emphasis from, say, nouns to verbs, which are less solid, more directly relating to experience, from things to processes. From, from pronouns to relationship. This shift in the emphasis to verbs is so very explicit in Machado's poem, the, the title poem of this talk, the talk being called the path is laid down in walking. Machado says, and I repeat what I said before, wayfarer, there is no path. The path is laid down in walking. Caminante, no hay camino. Se hace camino al andar. And of course, I'm not the only one who's advocating this emphasis in verbs. Just uh, looking at Raquel's uh, bookcase, I, I saw a book she has. No, I read the book, I just saw the title. Entitled, what is it? God is a Verb. God is a Verb. Oh, sounds quite intriguing. Just uh, the last issue of Tricycle, oh, not last perhaps, but a recent issue of Tricycle, there was an article entitled Self as Verb, quite appropriately. Of course not, not to create a whole verbal complication again just just gently to to acknowledge the doing behind the objects to shift our emphasis from mind to minding which is what mind does that's that's a more real thing. Mind, it's just an abstraction. Minding, we know what that is. We can be mindful or not. We can mind or not mind. Never mind. 
And I would like to do the same with body, from body to bodying, although it hasn't much currency yet, but who knows, maybe it does. Because body is just an idea, you know. What we experience is the direct sensations of the body, either by touching it or by sensations inside the body. body has this, all these physical sensations of position, etc. Or by looking, we see the body, the image of the body. But the body itself is just concept. So, the practice invites you to spend a lot of time bodying, a time being present with, with what the body tells us, tickling, vibrating, pulsing, sensing, hurting, soothing, or well, sometimes Silence, too. Just being present with the silence that comes from all those um, means of internal communication that are not conveying anything to us at that time. And so with uh, relationships as well. Take parent-child relationships that are so essential, so important. Are we going to put the emphasis on the role of the parent, the child, that they assume? Are we going to really put our heart in the interplay between parent and child, in the, in the parenting, if we are a parent. And again, if we are a child, there is no ready verb for that, but uh, childing, why not? In the childing. You see, the difference is considerable in putting emphasis in relationship or putting emphasis in this person and the other person. And he, she is obeying me. She, he is uh, ordering me. Because the roles are framed in the culture of inevitable, in this culture, in the culture of patriarchy. That's uh, the mold of all our family relationships, really. And if we put the emphasis on relating, then we put the emphasis not on the structures of patriarchy, but in the experience of love. And what I'm saying about parent-child relationship applies 
even more so to relationships within a couple. The defining structure often called marriage easily becomes a confining structure. Easily. Particularly in the shadow of patriarchy. I'm I'm sure in other systems as well. And it can be so liberating to remind ourselves of the unlimited opportunities within the relationship to cultivate that relating to each other, loving each other. It can do so much to keep the marriage or whatever name we give it to you alive, not frozen. To renew it all the time. In a way, it's like an invitation, if I can use another verb that applies here, the verb being espousing. Espousing each other, espousing each other every day, every moment as an activity, as a verb. Nothing confining there. On this note, let me share with you what I consider very auspicious uh, news. There's still the less auspicious part of that. The less auspicious part of that is that two people from New York City that have often come to the retreats, a name being Charmaine Henderson and Paula, and I forgot her last name, were coming to come to this retreat, but they couldn't. The auspicious part is that they couldn't come because today they're getting married in Toronto. See, that was a great feeling. They had to go to Canada to get married, Charmaine and Paula. And then getting married, presumably right now, around this time. So let's uh, us expand, uh, extend our love and best wishes to them. May their relationship continue to be a verb. May they continue to espouse each other through easy and difficult times, of course. May their relationship be laid down in their spousing.
And closing, let me, just I can resist, reading Antonio Machado again, this time dedicated to Charmaine and Poland. Spanish and English. No, there we are, English and Spanish. Wayfarer, the way is your footsteps and nothing else. Wayfarer, there is no path. The path is laid down in walking. In walking, the path is laid down. And on turning back to look, one sees the trail that will never be trod again. Wayfarer, there is no path, only a wake left on the sea. Caminante. Son tus huellas el camino y nada más. Caminante. No hay camino, se hace camino al andar. Al andar se hace camino y al volver la vista atrás se ve la senda que nunca se ha de volver a pisar. Caminante, no hay camino sino estelas en el mar. Let's just sit for a couple of minutes. Silence, please.